What is the problem that you identify in your life? And what is the solution that you identify to fix it? In many ways, that's how you find your idols. That, that's how you find what it is that, that you are worshiping. Bill spoke to us, uh, you know, when he was in Indianapolis, problem was security and comfort, and, and he had fixed it through wealth and uh, being comfortable in family and all of those different things until the Lord unearthed it and moved it. China speaks of, of the power of money, sex, uh, you know, power gods, as we are looking to those things to satisfy us at the deepest core. In this way, we just connect uh, with people all throughout history. We'll share that with you in just a minute, but I want to read for you the portion of Exodus today, beginning in chapter 8, verse 20, these plagues. Because the Egyptians worshipped many, many gods. Uh, and again, our point is not to pillory the Egyptians, uh, but to recognize that that we are like them, like these Egyptians. We, we seek false gods. We seek false ideologies to satisfy us. And, and their gods range. They're, they range from fertility to the sun to uh, power and wealth and all of these different things. And they were symbolized uh, in different ways. Uh, they were symbolized by the Nile River. They were symbolized by frogs, the god Heket. They were symbolized by Hathor, the bull, and uh, all of these different things. Uh, and God takes on all of these gods in very specific ways through livestock, through flies, through hail, boils, uh, wealth, learning, all of these. So let's read how God uh, moves, beginning with the, the fourth plague, 8 verse 20, through the sixth plague um, in chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning, present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord. Let my people go that they may serve me, or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with the swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they sat stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know, that you may know, that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen, and the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses, and throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses says, It would not be right to do so, for... The offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. And if we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go. Sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you, and I will plead 
with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from the people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked, and he removed swarms of flies from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, Behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And at the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. And the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them into the air in the sight of Pharaoh, and it shall become a fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils, breaking out in sores on a man and a beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln, stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it into the air, and it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Thus far in the reading of God's word. Yeah, we're a little out of rhythm, a little bit later, but you did okay. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We know that it is living and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce our hearts. And, oh, Father, our hearts desperately need to be pierced uh, by your word. For we can see at the outset that we're so much like the folks that Paul wrote to in Rome who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. We can see that we're so much like the people of Israel or, or of Egypt who, who find uh, any old thing uh, to worship. Lord, we pray, rescue us uh, from our own hearts. Rescue us from our enslavement through the reading and the preaching of this word. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Egypt, as I've already alluded to, had a lot of gods. Now, again, we're not picking on the Egyptians uh, because we recognize from the outset uh, that with John Calvin, our hearts are idol factories. Uh, we will make a god out of anything, literally anything. But the Egyptians uh, are a picture of our own hearts. Uh, they had over 2,000 deities in the Egyptian pantheon. Some of these deities are well-known, Isis, Osiris, Horus, Ammon, Ra, Hathor, Bastet, Thoth, Anubis, uh, or, sorry, Anubis, Ptah, while others are less known. 
the more famous gods became state deities, while the others were associated with a specific region or, in some case, a ritual or a role. For instance, uh, the goddess Kebet uh, is a little-known deity who offered cool water to the souls of the dead as they awaited judgment in the afterlife. Shishet was the goddess of written words and specific measurements. Maybe she lives in that little app on my phone that measures things. I don't know. Uh, but uh, she reported to Thoth, who was the better-known god of wisdom, writing, and the patron of scribes. These were all gods, and you can see as you walk through the Ten Commandments, you look at the Nile River turning to blood, you look at frogs, you look at dust to lice, flies, pestilence, boils, hail, locusts, darkness. All of these things are aimed specifically at the gods of Egypt. Uh, as God is coming into the situation in ancient Egypt all those days, his role or his heart is to make himself known. I will be known among the Israelites and, above the, and among the Egyptians. The first thing that I want us to recognize this morning is our propensity along with the Egyptians and along with the Greeks and along with the Romans because they have their long lists of gods as well, Zeus, Hera, Poseidon, Demeter, Athena, Hephaestus, Aphrodite, Apollos, Juno, Neptune, you know, all of those gods, along with all of these folks, we too uh, are, are idol makers. Why? Because, and this is sort of the first point, kind of been wandering around into this right now, the first point is we're made to worship. You are made to worship. You cannot escape it. Uh, you're here this morning participating in the singing of God's people, participating in the word, participating in uh, all of the things that we participate, and we call this worship. But when you go out today, you will continue to be engaged in worship. When you go out throughout the week, you are going to be worshiping all the time because you are made to worship. People who don't come in to church, they too are worshiping. So it's never a question of will we worship, it's always a question of what will we worship. What is it that we are bowing down to, either literally in the case of a, an idol, you heard Bill talk about that, you know, in Asia, much more common than in the U.S., you have Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, some of these other things where you walk into a restaurant or uh, you go into a home and, and there is a, an idol set up for ancestral worship. You know, there are literal physical things that we worship, but there are always ideologies, you know, that our heart grasps onto. And like I said at the beginning, it goes back to those two questions. You know, what do you see as the primary lack in your life? You know, what is the point of pain? Where is your heart unsatisfied? And then how, what are you looking to, to fill that? How is that going to be solved or absolved? What is it that's going to bring peace to that area of our heart. And so that's why even in a secular society like today, and by that I, I mean a society that can walk away from the supernatural, uh, a society that can try to live life uh, not bowing down to the supernatural or recognizing the super, supernatural, even in a secular society, we're still worshiping. 
Here's how David Zoll, in a recent book called Seculosity, where he's taking, you know, the idea of secularism, and, and he's saying it's actually a religion, right? Seculosity, it's a, it's a religion. And he says, if you want to understand in a secular society what it is that we're prone to worship, he says this, look at where you're most tired, and you will likely find your gods at work. It's the drive to validate your existence, to assert your love ability. How do we do it? We try to adhere to a standard of enoughness. This is sort of the, the term that he coins to say we're, we're always trying to get enough, enough of love, enough of sex, enough of money, enough of power, enough of comfort, enough security, enough political uh, rest, enough uh, religion. If I can just get enough, if I can just get enough of these things, then that, that, that little hole in my heart will be filled, that aching longing, that loneliness, whatever it is, that's what's going to solve that problem. But that is, that, that is not enough. It will never satisfy. But these are the things that we worship. You know, we, we are exactly like the Egyptians, like the Romans, like the Greeks. We're exactly like what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Rather than worshiping the Creator, who is forever blessed, we worship and serve created things instead. All of those things that I've mentioned in a secular society, uh, food, romance, education, children, technology, work, leisure, politics, religion itself. These are created things, and they're good. They, they, they're good gifts that God has given us. But as some have said, we make them ultimate things. And, and so we feel it. You know, we, we look to, I think of marriage is one of those things where, you know, we, we look for marriage to heal the hole that's in our heart, the loneliness, our security, our self-image, all of those things. And then our spouses uh, disappoint us. And, and, and it, it doesn't heal us. We, we've made it a God. We've made it an idol. And we're asking it to do something that it was never made to do. And so we, we live these lives of, of bitterness and we, we rail against it. You think about money. I have a good friend who's made a lot of money uh, in his life. And he loves the Lord and he's super generous. Uh, but he's very honest as well. Uh, he says it's never enough. You know, I can buy this boat or this car and I can go in this direction or that direction, go on this trip, and it's never enough. There's always a bigger boat. <laughs> There's always a nicer car. There's always another trip. We, we look to created things to fill that hole in our heart, and these things cannot do it. We were made to worship, but not these things. And, and there are a couple of other things that I just point out to you. When, when we try to worship these things, uh, we find out that, that they are bloodthirsty. Uh, you, you saw that in chapter 8, verse 26. 
Um, 8 verse 26, Pharaoh is thinking about letting Israel go sacrifice, but he doesn't want them to go outside of Egypt. Of course, he's afraid of losing his workforce. Uh, and, and he says, just sacrifice within the land of Egypt. But Moses says, that's not a good idea. For the offerings that we sacrifice to the Lord would be an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? You know, so they're thinking about offering things like bulls and rams, but these are things that the Egyptians are worshiping. And, and so that's not a good idea. And, and, and what we realize is that the things that we worship are jealous. You know, sex is a jealous God. Uh, and if we seek to move away from that, if we seek to, you know, let it flow within the contours that God made it, it doesn't like that, and it, it seeks to push against it. Money is a jealous God. Uh, power is a jealous God. Just like these gods of the Egyptians are jealous gods, we have to recognize that we think that we, that we give our hearts to are jealous. And not only are they jealous, but they also are oppressive. So interesting, uh, in the sixth plague, the plague of the boils, uh, look at what it says in verse 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw it in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. So they took these handfuls of soot and they threw it uh, in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. What's significant about that? Don't all answer at once. It's okay. The, uh, what's significant about that is uh, the kiln. What was taking place in the kiln? The kiln was where they were baking the bricks. I mean, this was the symbol of Egyptian oppression of the Israelites. This was the, pl this was the locus of slavery. Uh, if anything emblemized, symbolized their slavery, uh, it, was, uh, it was the kiln. It was the marker that reminded them that they were an oppressed people. Uh, and it wasn't like, Ken, I remember, you know, at Colorville Christian, when I was a kid, we would make these clay pots, and then they would be taken and fired in the kiln. That, that was a very controlled area, safe, you know, tiny. These were enormous. I mean, they were building cities, and, and you know about the monuments of the Egyptians that stand as some of the ancient wonder, you know, the wonders of the ancient world. So these were enormous Pits, you know, think about like the death chambers in, in Nazi Germany, that kind of thing. That's the type of thing that we should be thinking about when we think about the kiln. And here's two things with regards to that. First is this, whenever we worship a God that's not Yahweh, we will put ourselves in the place of God and we will oppress others around us. Uh, one of the things that God is very clear in the plagues is that he is a God of justice, and he is a God of mercy, and, and he, will, he will not allow Pharaoh to continue this, uh, this uh, regime of oppression. Uh, and, and he insists on a, on a land that is full of, just, uh, of justice and mercy. But our gods, you know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh couldn't do that on his own. 
because he was worshiping his might and his power and his name and, you know, his wealth, all of these things that were symbolized by the kiln. And, and so God had to point out to him, and he does it very dramatically. He says, this soot from the kiln, this very place where you've been oppressing the people of Israel, it's going to be boils upon you. And these were boils that they could not exist. And it was very personal in a way that, that God attached these boils to the people of Israel. Even the magicians, it says, could not stand. And this is the last time that we see the Egyptians. And there's a, a second truth there, namely, that the gods that we worship, if they are not Yahweh, if they are not the one true God, they will have our blood. They will have our blood. If we continue to worship the God of autonomy in the United States, it will have our blood. You can be sure of it. Uh, and that comes out in, in various ways, whether it's through our sexuality, whether it's through things like abortion, whether it's through things like our attitudes towards refugees. There are so many ways in which when we put ourselves on the throne, when we insist on bowing down to the God of our own autonomy, there are so many ways in which it has our blood. And we need to learn, you know, our hearts are worshiping, uh, they're, they're prone to worship. So who are we worshiping? Are we worshiping the right God? And that's, that's where this, you know, the, the whole cycle of the plagues, and really we started last week, put the plagues in the cosmic sphere. Now we're looking at it very much, you know, in terms of our own life and how we participate in some of the same idolatry as the Egyptians. Next week, Bryant's going to finish the plague cycle with the, with the last three plagues. But in all of it, God is exerting his power. He's exerting his glory. Here's how Spurgeon puts it in Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Baptist preacher puts it this way, when it pleases God to humble man, he is never at a loss for means. His power is so great. He's never at a loss for means. He can use lions or lice, famines or flies. In the armory of God, there are weapons of every kind, from the stars in their courses down to the caterpillars in their hosts. The dust of the earth out of which man is formed will at God's command forget its kinship with humanity and overwhelm a caravan, caravan, while the waters will forsake their channels, invade the tops of the mountains, and drown a rebellious race. When the Lord contends against proud men, he has but to lift his finger, and countless legions throng among, around him, all loyal to their Lord, valiant for his name. Know you not that the beasts of the fields are his servants and the stones of the street obey his bidding? Every wave in Lake Michigan worships him and every wind knows its Lord. If you are going to war against him, if you're not bowing to him, if you are worshiping anything else besides him, it would be well for us, says Spurgeon, to remember what his forces are Consider the battle and war no more. God alone is to be worshipped. He asserts his priority over the gods of Egypt. 
He asserts his priority over all of the forces of nature. He over and over again asserts his authority even over human autonomy, human heart. Remember Pharaoh, who is the Lord that I should worship him? And the Lord says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am the one who belongs worship alone. Please come and bow before me. I said please. God doesn't say please like that. Uh, he doesn't need to. You know, when we truly see his majesty and his glory, you know, we think of people like Peter, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, you know, or uh, Isaiah who hides his eyes at the, at the glory of the Lord. Nonetheless, God is gracious. And we see this in this passage. <coughs> and this is where we go thirdly. This is God is calling us to worship him alone. He's inviting us to worship him alone. If you go back and you look at the plagues, we have 10 of them, right? We'll, we'll put the 10th over here. This is the, the plague that is Passover, the firstborn son. Um, but then you have nine. You have three sets of three. And there's a very interesting uh, uh, sequence to each set of three. You saw it in what we read today. If you look in verse 20 of chapter 8, uh, he says, rise up early in the morning. The Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord. So in 1, 4, and 7, we see that exact same instruction. Rise up, go early in the morning, present yourself to Pharaoh and tell him this. 2, 5, and 8, we see uh, what we see in the beginning of chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go. Uh, there is less of a formality. Uh, there's less uh, sort of respect. You know, Moses just goes into Pharaoh and tells him. And then in plagues 3, 6, and 9, uh, working with the numbers there, 3, 6, and 9, uh, there's no warning whatsoever. Uh, he just throws up the dust, it becomes the boils. Uh, it just becomes the darkness uh, in nine. There's no warning whatsoever. What is it that we're to take away from this? First of all, there's nine plagues before you get to the last one. And every one of these is a warning, and every one of them is an invitation to soften your heart. Every single one of them is an invitation to Pharaoh and all the Egyptians to soften their heart and, and to bow before the Lord. The significance of going out in the morning, his mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God is very careful. He is very gracious. He's very patient with Pharaoh who over and over and over again hardens his heart and he goes out in the morning. I love that. He goes out in the morning and he presents to Pharaoh, turn, turn, repent. God will hear. Pharaoh never does. It's one of the things that stands out as a warning to all of us. Pharaoh never turns. He continues to harden his heart. But you know what? There are some Egyptians that do. Did you know that? 
Uh, I, I missed that somewhere along the line, or at least I was reminded of it this time through. If you look in chapter 9, verse 20, you, you get a, a first uh, hint of this. In verse 20, this is the seventh plague, the plague of the hail. Whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into his houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and livestock in the field. And then in chapter 10, verse 7, Pharaoh's servants say to Pharaoh, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the people go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? I mean, these people are, are so like, Pharaoh, what are you doing? They are seeing Yahweh. They're seeing his hand. They're seeing what he's doing. And their hearts are responding, at least on some level, the final clue that we get. You remember the 10th the plague, you know, sort of from plague four on, you've got this distinction between Egypt and Goshen. The 10th plague covers the whole land, though. What differentiates the 10th plague and the people in the 10th plague is the blood on the doorpost. Uh, and, and that was an invitation to Egyptians or to the Israelites. And wherever God, the angel of death, found the blood on the doorpost, we'll talk much more about this in the coming weeks, he passed over. Wherever he didn't, whether they were Egyptian or Israelite, the angel of death came in and the firstborn son uh, was taken. At the end of that time, it says, I think it's 1228, says a mixed multitude went out of Egypt. It wasn't only the Israelites that were delivered, but it was a mixed multitude of people, Egyptians along with Israelites, because God is merciful. God is just. He will show himself to be God among the gods, but he is merciful in that he extends warning, grace. You know, we might say this is the grace of exposure. Do you feel maybe a little exposed this morning when we talk about gods, things that you might be worshiping other than Yahweh? I know I do. You know, working through this, I'm like, yep, I worship that, I worship that, I worship that. But that's God's grace exposing the places where we are worshiping and serving created things rather than the creator. And it's the opportunity that we have to repent, to, to turn away from those things, to confess it before the Lord, to receive his pardoning grace, to receive his mercy, because ultimately... It's in Jesus Christ that he throws all of his wrath against the gods of this land. It's all of that that he pours out on Jesus in order that we could be rescued and redeemed. This is the heart of the Lord. The heart of the Lord is to redeem his people from their slavery to Egypt, from their slavery to the gods, because remember, the, the Israelites themselves were worshiping the gods of the Egyptians. They will set one up again in the, in the wilderness. But he is delivering them from slavery, and he would deliver you from slavery as well. Let me just say one more thing. 
You know, Pharaoh has this, uh, and I'm sure Bryant will talk more about this uh, next week. Pharaoh has this pattern of sort of partial obedience and then pulling back. Another pattern that Pharaoh has is not praying to the Lord himself, uh, but relying on the spirituality of Moses and Aaron in this case. Now, on the one hand, uh, as a believer, uh, as somebody who follows Jesus and loves Jesus, I need to be aware that I need to be praying for my friends and my co-workers and my neighbors that aren't following Jesus. Because sometimes they, they don't even know what to pray or how to pray, and I need to be praying for them. On the other hand, and this is for all of us, you cannot live through somebody else's spirituality. You have to learn to go before the Lord yourself. You have to go and sit with the Lord. Doesn't mean you have to be good at religious performance. That's not what God is looking for. You know, the sacrifices of God, he says, are a broken and a contrite spirit. That's what he will not despise. But don't rely on the prayers of Moses and Aaron. Don't rely on the prayers of your parents. Don't rely on the prayers of your spouse. Don't rely on the prayers of your pastor or, you know, the books that you read or this devotional that you're going through. Develop your own spirituality with the Lord. He is inviting you to do it this morning. Again, Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, it would have been a wonderfully good sign if Pharaoh had said, join with me, O Moses and Aaron, while I pray to Jehovah that he may take the frogs from me. That would have been so sweet, but no. He had only what Spurgeon calls a condemning faith, which contented itself with other man's prayers. Brothers and sisters, let's pray together, all of us, that the Lord would take away the frogs, that he would expose the hardness of our hearts, and may we find the sweetness in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in him alone. He's taken the wrath in order that we might have the mercy. Will your soul be satisfied in him? That's my prayer, all of us. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we look in so many other places to be satisfied. But satisfaction can only be found in you. May we through the power of the Holy Spirit, working with the Word, walk out of here with hearts that are weeping before you, weeping over our sin, that which separates us from you, but weeping for the joy that knowing that you have not rejected us because you have rejected your own Son and you have given us his righteousness. Oh, Father, May we hear your voice this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.